0: Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. There is something in the oxygen of Providence, Rhode Island. No one knows what it is, but it was a certain chemistry, an ether, a theory From long ago and far away, the patron saint of all that economics was one William Poole, who ended up with wonderful public service at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis uh, years ago. David, why don't you bring our two guests in other than to say that this is a special Brown University moment. We say that. Uh, uh, to all of Brown economics and Brown scholarship
1: it's probably a school morning. song to be sung, but we'll save that for later uh, in the hour. Bob Sinch with us, global strategist at Amherst Pierpont and Hiroshi Watanabe, the president of the Institute for International Monetary Affairs, joining us uh, as well. You two were roommates, room, office, mates office mates in Providence. So tell us a bit about sort of what you were doing doing at Brown. Let me move these mics a little bit as well, sorry, mm-hmm. So I take care of some housekeeping as well. You, you met each other. Give us a sense of, of what brought you guys together.
2: Well, you know, they. Uh, uh, it was a relatively small class. Yeah, uh, I think only about uh, about twenty of us in the uh, in the program, and uh, Hiroshi and I and a third guy uh, uh, shared an office together. Uh, um, you know, office hours with the undergrads. Um, we did have a, a special time between two and two thirty afternoon. When we in the afternoon, we did not have office hours because, believe it or not, the Gong Show was on, and all the graduate <laughs> students in economics would go into one office. Yeah. And unfortunately, watch the gong show for 30 minutes while undergrads cool their heels out in the hallway.
0: Hiroshi, you yeah. have gone on to great acclaim yeah. within Japanese economics. And, and part of what I think of Brown University is the underlying theories involved now. What is the underlying theory right now of Bank of Japan and Ministry of Finance economics? Away from the simplicity of Abinomics, what's the underlying theory?
3: Well, sometimes we call the, the current government's policy the three-arrows operation to that. So the first one is the monetary policy change, and the second one is the fiscal policy stimulus. And the third one is the structural reform, including some of the, uh, the <clears throat> uh, growth strategies to that. So the, well, but the original meaning of the three arrows, it should be done in simultaneously. But the current government is a little bit squeezed on the situation, and the, it should be shot one by one to that. And the, the very frankly speaking, in the first one, the monetary change has been working so hard and so drastic to that. And the second one is a little bit working to, you know, the, in addition to such kind of the monetary policy change to that. So the, the government is not a little bit lazy to perform the third arrows of the strategy. Uh, structural reform to that. But now the government realized the first one in the monetary change is just giving the time allowances, not the fundamental change would be given by the monetary changes. So I think now the government started to work on the third arrows, especially starting the end of the 15, they can work on that.
0: If you're just joining us now, Hiroshi Montano be with us. Uh, he is with the Japan uh, Bank for International Cooperation, the governor and chief executive officer. And Robert Cinch with us is Amherst Pierpont. They're going to be with us through the hour. We will speak with Bob Cinch about sterling and the momentous moves in foreign exchange. We'll do that later in the next half hour.
1: David? Yeah, uh, Bob, let me just ask you about what uh, Hiroshi was
2: saying there a little bit, that they're a little bit squeezed right now. What are you saying as you look at Japan from from your perch here in the U.S.? You know, I think what's happening in Japan is not dissimilar to what's happening in the rest of the developed world, right? There has been an, an excessive reliance on monetary policy uh, to drive the economic expansion. We're now getting into that expansion mode, um, and, and the real questions now are, you know, can we implement structural reform? Uh, Japan, I think it's a big issue. Uh, Europe, it's also a very big issue. Um, and these are really structural reforms that are needed to, ge- to generate faster potential growth as the working age populations are shrink, shrinking in many of these countries. And we're not seeing big productivity gains. And so the result is you have potential GDP growth that in in, in the Eurozone is maybe one to one and a half percent. In Japan, maybe a half to one percent. Uh, in the U.S., maybe somewhere around two percent. And you, you really need to get much faster um, potential growth to, to, uh, you know, to generate the kind of momentum in the global economy that everybody would like to see. And now it becomes incumbent upon fiscal policy, regulatory policy, and structural reforms. And as we know, those are very difficult. And, and surprisingly, um, you know, we think about the political morass here in the U.S. and the inability to get policy really moving forward. You would think it would you know, be easier in Japan where the where the LDP has, uh, you know, well, pretty pretty good control over policy. Let's
0: come back. Bob Cinch with us with Hiroshi Watanabe uh, as well. Oh, both of Brown University. This is Bloomberg. This is a real treat. We're going to digress here. We're going to get to Bob Cinch in a bit here on the huge moves, his brilliant call on sterling strength. We'll do that in a bit. Hiroshi Watanabe with us. Uh, who was a classmate of Bob Sinches at Brown University. And what this means, we're going to go a little wonkdom here. 1978, Money in the Economy, Bill pool That was the Bible, the gospel. There were a few other papers. Bob Sinch, translate for our audience the effect and the power of a monetarist theory in the late 70s. It was gospel, wasn't it?
2: You know, the, the 70s was a very interesting time because, um, you know, there was some, some view that the business cycle had been conquered, um, and, and we found out later that a lot of that was the result of very stimulative fiscal policy and accommodative monetary policy uh, in the late 60s into the early 70s, which, of course, manifests itself into a, a rapid acceleration of inflation pressures, higher energy prices, uh, we know the history. And you know, monetarism really was not very uh widely followed and uh, and certainly practiced amongst government economists. It was mm-hmm. very much a Keynesian world. And what Bill Poole did was really introduce monetary analysis um to a you know to to a broad array of, of students, certainly, and something that I gravitated toward. Uh, and found very, very useful in terms of analyzing inflation pressures as we went through the 70s and then the whole disinflation process of the 1980s. Um, that was really ushered in by a much tighter monetary policy. So I think the, the, the 70s and the 80s was really the the peak period right. for monetary analysis and, and useful not only in, in policy but also in markets.
0: Okay. Well, then, Hiroshi, help me here with the names Carl Bruner, Alan Meltzer, uh, Anna Schwartz, maybe David Laidler of Western Ontario <laughs> as well. We used, The world used to stop when young Sinch and I – Sinch was still wearing goalie pads uh, in, in a job then <laughs> – but help me here with—the the world stopped on Thursdays for M1, M2, M3. It was gospel. What happened? What did you learn about the end of our worship of M1, M2, M3?
3: Yeah, we discussed on M1, M2, M3 that these days we have another M. So, so many big varieties do that. And also the, the Bob says in the 70s, 80s, that period is very much the— <clears throat> And suitable to such kind of discussion to that. But the last 25 years, always now we see the abundance of the money. That's quite different from the age of the 70s, 80s. So since the early 90s, almost every year, the interest rate is going down and down and down. There is no sign of the pickup to that. So that caused too much big the change, or even such kind of theory and such kind of analysis to that.
1: How, how have you seen the study of monetary policy evolve, Bob? Where, where does the, the, the monetary policy you learned at Brown, the Brown School, continue today?
2: You know, I think there's, there, there's uh, one issue that, that started in the 70s and 80s in terms of financial innovation and what impact that had on analyzing monetary policy. Um, but I think really what's happened is a realization of how important the banking system is to monetary analysis. And you know, monetary analysis and monetarism and its impact on nominal G- GDP and inflation works under the assumption of a steady mul- money multiplier, so the ratio of money supply in the system to the monetary base, and also stable velocity of money, so the relationship of nominal GDP to monetary growth. And what we've seen is as banking systems become dysfunctional, these monetary linkages begin to break down. And so- you know, we're accustomed to a period where, you know, monetary analysis mm-hmm. could give us results. We've now come to realize how important the banking sector is globally to turning monetary right. policy from central banks into economic um, outcomes.
0: Hiroshi Watanabe with us, uh, governor and the chief executive officer of the Japan bank for international cooperation we really begin today our international coverage as we go to the world bank at imf meetings thursday and friday francine will jet in tonight she's she's on the surveillance golf stream right david <laughs> i think going, she's coming going to in. pick
1: her up and she'll be here tomorrow yeah. right she's in new york tomorrow teeter bro it's easy. easier to get the teeter yes, bro than yeah.
0: than uh, jfk <laughs> anyways francine will be in uh tomorrow maybe she'll be able to stop by and be with me and uh, David, as well. Uh, much to talk about on international economics, but we demand that Bob Sinch of Amherst Pierpont here with Mr. Wantanami, his classmate at Brown, take a victory lap on sterling. You called the bottom on sterling. You went long, strong sterling. You were right, right, right. Did you ever imagine a 128 and a snap election?
2: You know, I, I, I didn't think we'd get up to these kind of levels. I thought around one twenty five would probably be it on uh, on Sterling. Um, clearly, this is an aggressive move by the Prime Minister in terms of uh, uh, in terms of solidifying her leadership. Um, And I think there are a lot of uncomfortable shorts in Sterling. I think they are complacent short positions in Sterling that are really getting squeezed. And to
0: frame some of the houses on this, HSBC and Deutsche Bank with weak Sterling calls, uh, UBS and Kitschuk's over at SockGen with leveling to even a stronger Sterling call. There's winners and losers on this. But Alan Ruskin with a wonderful note this morning as Deutsche Bank threw in the towel and looked for Sterling stability and such. What are the legs here? If the shorts all cover, can that drive Sterling to unimaginable recent levels like 135, as Alan alludes to, or even back to a Brexit 140-something?
2: You know, I don't think so. I think we've traced out over the last four or five months uh, the range, which I think is 120 to 130. Um, so you have calls for 110 that got frustrated on the downside. We may get calls for 135 and, and higher, get frustrated on the upside. Actually, I think that in the midst of this big short covering, what we're facing is, I think, a U.K. economy that is in the process of slowing down. Last year, surprise that, that the initial Brexit decision had very little impact on the economy. I think it was actually stimulative for the economy. Because consumers, seeing a big drop in the pound, expected higher prices in the future. When you expect higher prices in the future, you accelerate your consumption into the present. So I think the consumer did a lot of anticipatory buying in the second half of 2016. They've run out of that spending power. We're now seeing a slowdown of employment growth. We're now seeing prices actually moving higher. So real income growth has slumped to close to zero in the UK. So I think just as we're getting this big short covering rally, in fact, the economy is going to surprise a bit on the downside. I think uh, Prime Minister May is lucky that is a very short time Mm -hmm. between the announcement and the actual election because I think the economy is in the process of slowing pretty significantly. And and
0: David, in my reading, I've I've heard that theme. Mm. There's a huge advantage here to
1: June 8th. Let me pull back here uh, and and ask about currency more generally. We've had the the president of the United States saying he's not going to declare China a currency manipulator. You've had uh, Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, talking about the strength uh, of the dollar. How does all of that rhetoric sound uh, in Japan when you hear uh, not just the Treasury Secretary but the president (laughs) jawboning about currency issues here in the U.S.?
3: Yeah, we are a little bit puzzled because there are many voices from the president and also the secretary. So they have so much different on that. So they were going to know how the Exactly, the U.S. is going to think about that, but maybe nobody knows, even in the United States, to that. So I think the current position of the Japanese yen and the dollar is not so much the bad for the either country to that. So from now on, I think there is some political confusion in the Europe is going to make the euro weaker, and even the sterling pound is somewhat moving on. But I. Uh, generally agree with what Bob said to so that. So I think the European currency is going to be a little bit weaker. Mm. And the dollar and the yen would be a little bit yeah, stronger. But uh, between the dollar and the yen, I don't think at this moment we don't have any big the, uh, the impact to move either way to that. Especially for the current the, the trade policy of the United States is going to make the dollar a little bit stronger and also that as far as the Madam yen is going to raise the interest rate coming again in that case the difference in the basic position is going to have the stronger dollar even the president is going to make the weaker uh, the dollar it would be fine to that but i think the market doesn't work in that way to that and also the the president has the uh, weakened the attack to the china because if they, they stopped the China to make an intervention to the market. Me would be much, much weaker. That means more easy to sell the product to the United States. So now the, the president is realized what the rea- reality is. That is a very good push, now, situation at this moment. To that, so.
1: Bob Sanchez, Tom said uh, he's headed to the IMF meetings uh, later this week. We got the growth forecast, the new revised growth forecast yesterday. Uh, Christine Lagarde telling Francine Lacqua last week that spring is in the air for the, the global economy. What's your reaction to what the IMF had to say uh, yesterday, sort of leaving uh, U.S. growth projections at, at the same amount. Uh, there were a few changes therein, but what do you make of the sort of rosy assessment of the the rosier assessment, I should say, uh, of of the global economy?
2: Well, I think it's a it's a it's a great look in the rearview mirror. Uh, you know, the IMF late last year was was still fairly downbeat on global growth, and I think the the green shoots here for early 2017 were pretty clear at that time, and we've gotten a, a I think a pretty nice acceleration. Hasn't showed up in the U.S. GDP numbers. But if you look around the rest of the world, I think we're heading towards real GDP growth of over 2 percent year over year in the eurozone. We haven't seen that for a number of years. Um, Japan has had, I think, five quarters of consecutive increases in, in growth. It's not spectacular, but that's not bad by recent standards. So. I think we are going through a, a better growth pattern in the early part of this year. And, and, and in in a sense, the IMF is just confirmation of that because they move very, very slowly in their analysis is and this, forecasts.
0: Is this a calendar reset in that it's just the time of year where the certitude of the end of the year, the certitude of January is the Fed will do this, the Fed will do that, the Bank of Japan will do this, et cetera, et cetera. And you sort of get to sell in May and go away, and everything begins to get lengthened out, just, just – It's oops, we're not so certain, and there's just autumn.
2: Yeah, I I think we're going through a little bit of that. I think that late last year, early this year, there were surprises to the upside in growth. You know, the economic surprise indexes that are calculated were all very, very strong readings. Now expectations have been been brought higher, going to be difficult to beat those expectations going forward. Uh, But I do think there is some sustained momentum. The question, I think, for markets is – Will central banks around the world do anything about that? And I think we've gotten another indication from the Bank of Japan that they have no intention of restraining monetary policy anytime soon. There was a little, I think, very unfounded um, bubbling up of optimism that the ECB might hike rates this year with a core inflation print that was just confirmed at 0.7 percent. I don't think there's a chance in the world the ECB tightens policy this year, which is why I think there's still upside for the dollar as we go through the year.
0: Uh, Hiroshi, please help us. And I think of Robert Feldman at Morgan Stanley and others that have given us wonderful perspective on your Japan. Is there a generational shift within Abinomics? You have students, you speak to the younger of Japan. Is there a generational shift going on in your Japan?
3: You know, the currently we have some the internal struggle between gene- generation to that, and also the, we are going to think about how the pension system is going to be sustained to that. So, the who bears bear such kind of burden is a big concern we are going to have to that. But the as you know, the we have about the 1,600 trillion yen in the, the individual asset, mainly 2,000 or more would be held by the aged people to that. So. That could be transferred to the younger generation. Is that one, one idea to that? And so that we are going to have the more reliance to the uh, the consumption tax instead of the individual income tax. To that, that means that the smaller number of the laborers, generally for the younger generation, is going to have the less burden of tax payment. And also the age of people who is going to consume more is going to have the more tax mm-hmm. burden. Such kind of the balance would be also discussed on that. So, even though they. Anytime the more the taxation would be no. uh, appreciated, but I think the such kind right. of the trade off would be one of the big concerns we're going, going to have to
0: that. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Hiroshi Watanabe, governor and chief executive officer of the Japan Bank for International Cooperation. I made a joke earlier 10 seconds, you're not predicting 140 sterling, right? Uh, absolutely. Okay, not. I want to be sure. About that. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I don't right. want to put words in your mouth. Bob Sinch of Amherst Pierpont, thank you so much. We say good morning to all of Brown University Economics Worldwide. This is Bloomberg. He is out of First Boston long ago and far away. And then he co-founded something in 1988, and everybody's like, yeah, you know. Okay, great. <laughs> Blackstone, BlackRock, Black this. And Lawrence Fink has built a juggernaut at BlackRock. Uh, they announced earnings today. And of course, they're knee deep in the asset management business uh, and such. He speaks on politics as well. He's out of UCLA a bit ago in the Anderson School. Our Eric Shasker sat down with Mr. Fink today. And of course, the conversation had to turn to the new United Kingdom.
4: I would say from our fears of the third and fourth quarter going into the first quarter, I would say the fears have abated somewhat. Uh, uh, We still don't understand what Brexit will mean for the UK. I've been in constant dialogue with, uh, with the May administration. Uh, They ask us, what are are our intentions? And our intentions is to stay pat and watch uh, uh, until we understand what Brexit means related to um, Europe. And one of the key elements that people have not talked about, the Europeans have been discussing items like, we want you to manage all European liabilities in Europe. Now, most firms use London as its platform for that. If they can find a way to force that type of behavior change that you move, that you have to manage, so you have to have your traders, your portfolio managers in continental Europe, that is the key element because if, if, the, if we have to move to Europe to manage it, then the banks will move their trading desks to Europe and the custodial and everything can be, you know, it could be quite disarming. And, and difficult. But um, so until we know where that stands, yep. that's pretty anti trade. That's a real severe issue. But that is a pivotal issue for financial institutions related to being in the City of London or outside. Beyond that, I mean, it, it, to me, Brexit is a wait and see issue uh... I, I you know i think the prime minister is doing uh, a, a very aggressive thing but you know her the the popularity of the party is very strong yeah. it valid if obviously if 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 the polling is correct and there's an overwhelming win. It validates, and solidifies herself as a PM and, and the party. And so I, I look at this as a more, more of a gesture of strength than, yeah. than anything else. But we have the French election this weekend, um, <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, we, we still have a strong view that it looks like uh, Macron can uh, can eke it out. Uh, but every day is a different day, and we we see you know an incredible horse race there. Um, so the market today is yeah. anticipating, I would say, a, a probable good outcome. Why is macron a good outcome? Well, I, I think they're more fearful of the two um, tails. Um, and uh, I think a fion outcome would be. Perceived to be good too, so the marketplace is looking at a more centrist outcome, an outcome that uh, that has government, the French government, wishing to stay within the eurozone, uh, more pro-trade, uh, and so we'll see. I mean, uh, I think it would be a it would be a very uh, difficult thing if if we had one of the tails winning. Uh, and the markets would would probably reverse and, and go down even further.
1: Larry, can we draw a contrast between Europe and the United States? There are risks, of course there are risks, and then there's the question as to whether the risks are appropriately reflected in asset values. You're among the people, and there are many, who were surprised that the U.S. equity market rallied as hard as it did after the election, and furthermore, consolidated those gains. So paint us a picture. How does the future look for US assets? How does the future look for European assets and the underlying macro fundamentals?
4: Well, I would say the US market is probably the, the market that is, uh, that is probably the most expensive relative to other mm-hmm. markets. Um, this is why earnings season is probably the most important issue for the markets today. Uh, I, I would, the marketplace was had higher expectations on quick actions out of our government related to tax reform immig- uh, 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 infrastructure um, and, uh, and 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 then uh, deregulation so those are the three things that the marketplace looked for and and that 's going to take um, obviously more time and so if we don't have earnings validating these higher PEs, and we're, you know, we, we could adjust downward five or ten percent from here. Um, and if the administration does succeed in some of these items, then the market will then reassert itself, going higher.
0: Lawrence Fink of BlackRock, of course, they're out with earnings today, and really the elephant in the room, David Gurra, and you know, I, you know, we were speculating yesterday on uh, before Prime Minister May spoke, and we don't like to do that on Bloomberg Surveillance, but you really speculate where as, uh, active and passive management will be. Within all the major buy side shops, you wonder where this will be in five years.
1: Yeah, we've had such a, an interesting conversation about this over these last few months. BlackRock, of course, investing in yeah. a lot of robo investors, making a move more into that. It's basically interesting to see how that shakes out with the complement of what's happening at Fidelity's. If we've, as we've discussed. Uh, as well, I should say, Larry Fink interviewed by Eric Schatzker in Bloomberg Markets magazine as well. Uh, his visage on the cover of that uh, most recent issue of, of the magazine, uh, a wide-ranging conversation there with Eric Schatzker and uh, our colleagues uh, on Bloomberg Daybreak Americas. They talked a bit about the the U.S. Uh, political scene as well and about the, the company. Of course, we got earnings from BlackRock earlier yeah. uh, this morning. <clears throat> and They had a conversation about regulation with, with Larry Fink, and I thought what was interesting there uh, was he talked about how he didn't necessarily think that um, – uh, uh, the the changing the tone of 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 regulations will do much more than uh, easing concerns within. That the regulation really hasn't inhibited loaning, and that's an interesting point. I, I
0: agree with all this. I think it's great. All I want to know is what how this how global wall street the people that are our core audience so we honor and thank you every day that you tune in five days a week i mean you turn off when michael bar's on i mean i get that michael Barr comes on <laughs> global wall street tunes out and goes okay what are, what, are, what are the tigers doing
5: today anyways and i'd like to thank my wife and my cousin <laughs> <for this>. uh, <laughs> you know
0: i mean we we are honored that you all listen to it i just want to know where the buy side is going to be in five years yeah if you know folks email in or tweet us or you know at David Gurr, whatever, we'd like to hear from you, as Eric did with Mr. Fink early in their, their wonderful interview. Uh, I, I just... I don't know how much more Vanguardy, Vanguardy and everybody else can get. Yeah. it's fascinating.
1: Just ask you there. I was, I was struck by what Larry Fink had to say about how he's approaching Brexit. The fact that yes. he's having this nonstop conversation with the May administration, but also that he's he's playing a real waiting game. And I know that yeah. every morning at five AM, you're focusing more uh, specifically or more narrowly on on Europe and the UK. Is is that something that you hear from from the folks you're interviewing? That uh, right now this is a sort of stand pat, wait and see time.
0: Here's what I would suggest: one word in In America, folks, you'll know it in the Northeast, certainly Stamford uh-huh. that's the one word in the head of every single managing officer of every firm is a number of firms went up to Bob Cinch's Stamford, Connecticut uh-huh. years ago, and it was a great idea until the kids said, "No, I want to be hip and cool like Michael Barr and stay in New York City." Oh, I mean they didn't want to go they didn't want to <laughs> go up to Connecticut. That's all there is to it and they had to move a lot of their intellectual capacity back to Manhattan.
1: So we're seeing that movement taking place. It's it's I, a more more vacancy okay. as you're driving down 95. Larry's
0: got to keep the manpower as yeah. does everyone else Deutsche Bank with their huge platform in London, UBS right by our present offices in London, our new offices by Mansion House the yeah. same thing. You got to keep the troops in London because that's where they want to stay is why you see the waiting. I would say
1: Check out that whole interview uh, on the Bloomberg at Bloomberg.com. Eric Schatzker and our colleagues in conversation with Larry Fink, the chairman and CEO of BlackRock.
0: Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news story's relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com slash Lens. This is well-timed. We usually have the privilege of the former governor of the Federal Reserve System and Columbia economist, Frederick Mishkin, we usually speak to him under the compressing rush of seven minutes wrapped around something Chair Yellen said. What a joy to speak to Rick Mishkin this morning with a little bit of pace and wind uh, 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 to, 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 to talk about. We're going to have him for the whole half hour, which is a good and beautiful thing. Uh, Fr- Rick Mishkin, in your book, your wonderful macroeconomics policy and practice, is there any discussion of the great Distortion and the idea of interest rates at the zero bound, and what that means for everyone
5: yeah well I, uh, certainly I mean the issue of the zero lower bound is a very big deal, uh, something that actually is quite remarkable uh, that we actually never dealt with in terms of uh, monetary economics until very recently because we just didn 't think this would be a real problem because The remarkable episode that we're in is one where, in fact, inflation has not been too high, but too low, something that's been really not common at all in the post-war period. So we're now in a brave new world. We're actually in a new normal and that changes things very dramatically. Uh, Clearly, you're not completely happy about having to be in a zero lower bound situation, having interest rates so low. Uh, But on the other hand, you may not have a choice. This is just the reality of the way the economy has uh, developed in recent years. And we're in a situation where it's true that having interest rates near zero does create uh, some strange aspects to the way the economy works but on the other and, hand, uh, people will get used to well, it, and so this is just the way life is. Sometimes th- here's how,
0: here's the real life, folks. I have Rick Mishkin's textbook on my coffee table in my living room, at home, and right near. Well, you really want to
5: bore people? I though. do. Uh, I don't. No, no. We use it. We use it as a. We use it to hold
0: cocktails up. But Rick, it's right near John Hicks' Value and Capital from a few years ago. Can we do traditional modeling in your book and in the, the great John Hicks books? Can we do that with the interest rate structure we're in right now. I say we can't do ISLM modeling or aggregate supply-demand analysis given the artificial model we're in.
5: No, actually, I don't agree with you here. Okay. What what I think is, is different is the way you think about the conduct of monetary policy. So, uh, and by the way, one thing that's important to say is that the U.S. may actually be coming out of this problem, that we're actually in a phase of of raising interest rates, that uh, that if the economy does as we hope it will do, uh, that uh, we'll be in a situation where it'll be more normal. Interest rates will be lower than they've been typically, but on the other hand, monetary policy will now be more conventional in terms of what is monetary policy, changing interest rates. However, when you had a situation where um, you hit this zero lower band, and particularly you're in such a low inflation world where inflation is too low. Uh, and that you actually need to have what we call real interest rates, that is, the interest rate adjusted for inflation, to be actually lower than is, is normal because the economy is not doing as well as you'd like. Then you're in a situation where you may not be able to lower nominal interest rates. The actual interest rate that you hear about when somebody talks about a 5% interest rate, they're talking about a 5% nominal rate. Uh, in that situation, what you need to do is you may have to take other steps to pursue um, expansionary monetary policy policy. And in fact, this is what we've seen the Federal Reserve do. So for example, one of the things that we saw happen is the Fed expanded its balance sheet tremendously, not to actually uh, uh, think of changing the balance sheet, but uh, so important, expanding the, uh, the, uh, the assets of the Federal Reserve, but to actually affect credit markets. So the Fed shifted to buying a lot of long-term uh, treasuries and long-term uh, uh, mortgage-backed securities. What were they trying to do? They couldn't lower the uh, the federal funds rate below zero. But by actually buying a lot of longer-term securities, you can actually lower the long-term interest rate uh, on those securities. And importantly, it's longer-term interest rates that are more important to what people do in terms of decisions. Nobody worries about the federal funds rate in terms of what I'm going to do, which is an overnight rate. You worry much more about the rent on your mortgage, which is is a very long-term rate, or the mortgage or the interest rate on your car loan, which is is intermediate-term rate. So in a sense, what it means is that monetary policy and the ability to affect aggregate demand – Uh, Is still there, but it can't be done with conventional tools. And furthermore, it may be not as effective as using conventional tools. This is one of the reasons why the Federal Reserve is very happy to be raising rates right now.
0: Professor Mishkin uh, taking his Ph.D. a few years ago at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Help me here, Rick Mishkin, with the Kool-Aid of Rudy Dornbusch, Stan Fisher, in all of MIT and what it means for a strong dollar policy. Should Chair Yellen worry of a strong dollar?
5: Well, I think the issue here is if the U.S. economy is doing better than other economies, then in fact the dollar will be strong. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. Yeah. So in a sense, the fact that we've had a strong dollar is an indication that the U.S. has actually been done, has done better, and that actually that the Federal Reserve has actually managed it better than many other central banks have managed their situations. Uh, we, the Federal Reserve in the U.S. was much more aggressive in terms of easing policy uh, than, for example, the European Central Bank, and that's one of the reasons that the u s has done better, so the strong dollar is actually a reflection of the fact that the u s is actually doing pretty pretty reasonably There is a big issue in the long run that we're not growing as fast as we we should that really doesn't have to do with monetary policy right. Uh, and uh, hopefully, uh, again, some of the latest policies in terms of trade that Trump has been pushing probably won't help in that regard. Is it,
0: is it tougher for the Chinese now because 20 years ago and 30 years ago, there were so many more fixed or quasi-fixed exchange rates, and now we're much more in a floating exchange rate world? Does that disadvantage Chinese policy? <laughs>
5: No, I don't think so. I think that that what is creating some issues for China is that they're not in the situation they were uh, 20 years ago which is that they were extremely low-wage country and, in fact, uh, that uh, global markets uh, really opened up for them. And that was a huge boon to their economy. Now that we're in a world where, in fact, China is no longer that cheap a place to manufacture goods, uh, that there are other places that have become much cheaper. This is actually, in one sense, a good thing for China because they've gotten so much richer over time. uh, But it's actually much more difficult. And then the second problem is that we're seeing in the world a, a... Uh, somewhat of a a step back from globalization, a step back from free trade. And we're seeing the rise of nationalism in many countries, particularly not just elsewhere, but also in the United States. And all of this means that it's maybe a little bit harder for China to access uh, markets, both because they're not a cheap producer anymore and because markets may not be as open to them. So there is a problem for them, but it, but uh, but I think that's where the where the problem lies.
1: Rick Mishkin, you welcomed uh, Stan Fisher, the, the vice chair of the Fed, up to Morningside Heights earlier this week. He delivered a speech at Columbia, and the, the headline for me was a line, he said, we appear less likely to face major market disturbances now than we did in the case of the taper uh, tantrum. What did he have to say about uh, the, the prospects for unwinding the balance sheet and doing that while raising rates?
5: Well, I think that that the, I think Stan is absolutely right, and it's also uh, that there are lessons learned from from the from the, uh, from the t- what is frequently called the taper tantrum, uh, which is that the Fed has to do a better job of communication, that the issue of actually uh, uh, having the balance sheet wind down is something that's really a technical issue. It should not be something that should be a major impact on monetary policy. How do you do that? Well, one thing is you give people a lot of advance warning, really explain what you're going to do, start doing it six months ahead of time, and then actually then when it happens, it becomes a non-event. So uh, the Fed has clearly moved very much in this, in, uh, this direction. And When the taper tantrum occurred several years ago, the big problem there was that the markets interpreted the fact that the Federal Reserve would no longer be buying as much uh, – would taper off its buying of, of, uh, of long-term bonds and mortgage-backed securities. They interpreted that as the Fed was going to tighten monetary policy more than it otherwise would. And in fact, they re- this case is very clear that, that the winding down of the balance sheet, trying to get it down to a much more reasonable level, is not a monetary policy action. It's a technical action and that it will not actually indicate that the Fed is going to be tighter on monetary policy than it, than it otherwise would. I think the Fed's doing a much better job of communication. They're starting much earlier, and I think this actually will be a non-event.
1: He talked also just about the role of data in Fed decisions, That the task of moving from uh, information like the dot plot, forecasts, to a rate decision is, quote, not simple and requires a great deal of analysis and back and forth among FOMC participants at, at each meeting. What did that tell you about how this Fed is is thinking, the process that this Fed is using?
5: In fact, this is something that actually I've done some research on uh, about a year ago, I was involved in writing a research paper where we were very critical of fed's communications about uh, about the dot plots and so-called forward guidance in terms of uh, telling people what would happen to the uh, future policy path of the federal of the federal funds rate uh, and our criticism basically was that, that uh, the, the fed was getting into a trap where people were thinking that when they said they were going to be you know in in their projections said that there were going to be three rate rises over the course of the year that that would mean that that's actually what they would do. What is really key is to make it clear that what you're going to do is going to depend on how the data evolves. So that you, would, when you actually talk about projections, they're projections which, in fact, you're almost surely not going to actually have happen. Why? Because the data is not going to be exactly what you expected it to be. And what we've seen is that the Fed has moved away from what we used, what we called time-based forward guidance, telling people exact dates, to saying that. What what's really relevant here is actually how the data evolves. And in fact, uh, we've seen, for example, the Fed kept on saying that it would raise rates and then did not do so, why the economy didn't, it wasn't as strong as the Fed had hoped. And even more importantly, inflation stayed too low. So I think that the Fed has actually done a much better job in communication. They're, they're what I call now data-based, which is that Given what what might happen to the data, you might do different things. So, for example, uh, if inflation uh, inflation has still been very tame, if inflation starts to heat up more than uh, than, than we're seeing right now, then the Fed is going to have to be more aggressive at raising rates. Uh, similarly, if the economy uh, uh, gets weaker, that we right now we have a projection that basically the economy is going to be growing solidly, that unemployment is going to stay uh, b- uh, below five percent. Uh, if that changes because something bad that happened, then the Fed actually should stop raising rates. So I think that they've been much clearer on, on this. And I think that's part of what Stan was trying to, mm. to get across, which is that the Fed's looking at a lot of data, that they're trying to figure out what's going to happen to the economy. And depending on how strong the economy is, how strong inflation is, that's going to change the, the actual uh, the, the path of, of, of the federal funds rate, the, the future policy mm. path.
1: Very quickly, we've got about 30 seconds left. Let me ask you about Randy Quarles, uh, reportedly going to be named to, to head up the, the Fed's regulatory uh, responsibilities, uh, private equity guy. His wife's maiden name is on the building. Uh, Eccles is her, is her maiden name. Uh, what kind of role is he going to play here? What, what, what do you think he's going to do in terms of shaping the Fed's direction? Uh, is, is this the strongest signal yet that we're moving to a more rules-based Fed?
5: No, I, I think uh, not. I think that, that uh, uh, he, his primary role is going to be on the regulatory front. Uh, and, uh, uh, and clearly that there's an issue that, uh, that the Trump administration has indicated. They think that, that uh, the banking uh, uh, regulation has gotten too onerous uh, and that, uh, that uh, Qualls has actually indicated that, uh, that he'd like some moving back from that. So I think that's where his real role is going to be. It is true yeah. that he's uh, that he's actually uh, uh, talked about the fact that the Fed should be more rules based. Well, I think, by the well, way, uh, what he's saying there is something that I think I do not agree with, and I think that when he starts talking to people inside the Fed, he's going to change his views.
0: Okay, we'll leave it there, Rick Mishkin. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance podcast.